Today on Podcast by the Bay. I can honestly say whoever wins doesn't matter to me. It's not going to change how I do what I do. Whoever loses, I'll still be their friends. It doesn't matter to me. And there's, there's an ability that journalists learn to separate their own feelings from what they're reporting on. And, and it's actually a lot easier than you, people might think it is. We speak with journalist, investigative reporter, and longtime San Mateo political insider, Mark Simon. Certainly district elections make races, make more races. San Mateo is a good example. Two or three other cities where there's, you know, San Carlos is running citywide. Redwood City's got three district elections up, one of which is unopposed. So it all depends on what city you're in. Um, it certainly does lower the threshold for somebody to run. It lowers the threshold for somebody to win. All coming up on today's episode of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is a production of Bay City Communications and is sponsored by Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com And now, another podcast by the Bay. Welcome to Podcast by the Bay. Today is uh, Tuesday, uh, and it's the 20th of uh, September, and I have the honor of interviewing Mark Simon. Mark Simon is a graduate of... uh, Skyline College in journalism and also a graduate of San Francisco, or not San Francisco, San Jose State University. Yeah, don't make that mistake. Yeah, I graduated from San Francisco State University. Well, I'm sorry for it. <laughs> well, it's the first year it became a university, which was 1986, so. Well, that's funny, because when I was at San, San Jose State, it's the first year it became a Cal State University. That was 73, so I'm much older than you. Yeah, well, I figured it by a few years, and I also I know that you went to Crestmore High School. I went to Westmore in Davis ah, City. Okay. So I'm assuming that you uh, grew up in... Uh, San Bruno. San Bruno. Yeah. Okay, I used to live off Whitman Way. Oh, yeah, right sure. Crestmore. Yeah, right Crestmore. Yeah, right up on the top of the hill there. Yeah. Well, welcome, Mark Simon. Uh, Mark Simon is a columnist for the San Mateo Daily Journal part-time. He's an executive producer and host of The Game, a public affairs cable and TV station. Uh, he's a member of the board of directors for Peninsula TV. He was also uh, spent 15 years on the San Mateo County Transit District. He's a senior supervisor in strategic initiatives. He's an executive officer for public affairs. Also, I think you were uh, you started early on your uh, stint in journalism uh, with the Peninsula Tribune. Is that correct? Well, I actually started with the Redwood City Tribune, Redwood City, okay. which was a sister paper of the Palo Alto Times that was acquired by the Tribune Company of Chicago, and they merged it into one paper called the Peninsula Times Tribune. Well, I guess the big question is, why did you get into journalism? You, you've actually had a, a really good stint. You've been doing this for 30 years plus, I'm well, just going to say. Yeah, since 73, so that's almost 50 years. We're closing in on 50 years. We need to think about that. I know I've got 40 in real estate, yeah. so I, my, my journey is similar to yours. Yeah, you think at some point we'd get good at it. Huh. Um, I, I, I knew at a very young age that I wanted to be a writer. It's the, one, the only subject I excelled at in school. Um, and then I got in the school newspaper at Crestmore, 
the advisor was a man named Sam Goldman, who really believed in high school newspapers being real newspapers. And we covered everything. Um, a lot of controversy because it was in the late 60s. And um, then I went to Skyline when it first opened, and Sam Goldman went up there. So I had him for five years as a teacher. He became like a second father to me. But early on, when I got my first byline in the Crestmore Crest, I knew, boy, this is what I want to do. Wow, that's exciting to take your, your dream and continue on with it. Um, you know, what's your opinion on public TV or podcast today? I know you're, you're really a journalist. I know we, I read all of your uh, editorials, and you spent some time on that. So what's your opinion on pod, public TV or podcast today in comparison? Is that really journalism? Well, it can be. It, it varies a lot. I mean, the Daily, the New York Times' podcast, that's journalism. Um, there's not a lot of commentary. Mostly what they do on that is they interview people who have written major stories for the New York Times. So you get an in-depth understanding of an issue. But there are lots of places, you know, where it's, it's a vehicle for a personality or for an opinion. And that's fine. It's, you know, I'm a believer in the marketplace of ideas and opinions. I'm not offended by them. But it's not journalism. By and large, it's not even pretending to be journalism. And if you're relying on it as a source of information and facts, that can be difficult because it's going to be a set of facts that usually buttress an opinion that's already been formed. Um, many of your readers, as well as myself, read your columns over and over and over again. You catch all, all <laughs> oh, the my God. <laughs> so can you tell us how much time do you spend on a column? Well, it, it, that's a great answer. You know, there was a stretch of time when I was at the San Francisco Chronicle where I was writing six columns a week. Uh, and, and it's sort of like having a headache that never quite goes away. It, the short answer is the actual writing takes about two to three hours. But gathering the information um, takes a lot more time than that. It's sort of an ongoing process. Uh, and then... A lot of times when I sit down to write, I've already spent several hours thinking about it in my head. How do I want to say this? What order do I want to do things in? What's the right phrasing for this? Um, you know, I've heard this. I need to check it out to see if it's accurate, uh, if it's true. <laughs> so um, the thing about writing a column is it's like you never really stop. You're always kind of working on it. But the actual writing takes two or three hours. What, what are your resources? Is that just phone uh, calling somebody up on the phone or an email or a text? How do you how do you reach out to get that information? All of the above. Plus, you know, because I write about politics, there's all the the public disclosure statements, the Form 700s, where you mm -hmm. someone like you has to disclose your personal financial holdings. There's the 460s, which are the reports on to the FPPC on campaign fundraising. Um, there are independent expenditure reports, and I'll spend a lot of time poring over those. Uh, I'm a, you know, I have bookmarked as the Secretary of State and the local election, election results pages because I'm constantly looking at those to see if I can understand in, in hindsight what happened or for a historical reference uh, to some other campaign. So, you know, you go a lot of places. I read everything I can get my hands on. I read, I'm, I'm also on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, and I look at those because people running for office, well, you know this better than I do, that's a major vehicle for people. So you, you can find out a lot. Somebody takes a stand on an issue, they'll do it on Instagram and they'll do it on Facebook. Yeah, um, do you like writing more than being on the air? Um, obviously, you've been on the game and you've had some uh, pretty good 
interesting people that you've interviewed over time, and I know you share that with Kevin uh, Mullins once in a while. On that. Well, yeah, I, I need to clarify a few things. Kevin and I were partners on the TV show for many years. Once he got elected to the legislature, that really had to stop. Um, and in fact, I think we, we cut way back on his appearances during his campaign for the assembly. We also have another partner, Melissa Michelson, who's a political science professor and head of the political science department at Menlo College, and she's brilliant. Um, so she and I are going to go forward. Peninsula TV has gone out of business. It went under for a bunch of reasons. I was on the board with Roseanne Faust and a bunch of other people, Marsha Wilson, and uh, we just decided to close it down because a cable TV station on Channel 26 you know, it was being supplanted by podcasts, by stuff online. Um, we're going to keep doing the game, which was the name of the TV show, but Penn TV is essentially gone now. Um, and Kevin will not be part of that going forward, even though he loved it, loved doing it. Um, do I think it's, you know, it, it, it was an extension of what I did. So it was a great chance to interact with the people I might write about, um, get to know them a little better, get to know them in a different setting, maybe gain something I could use uh, in print. So to me, it's all kind of journalism. I mean, I really made, made an effort when we were doing those interview shows to not state a point of view, um, maybe commentary from time to time, but it's not a forum, nor is the column a forum for advocacy. It's about uh, commentary and about reporting, as far as I'm concerned. So, some of your, your readers really want to know what's behind your mind. <laughs> your, your, the, your style of writing, which is very unique, and blunt sometimes, to yeah. the point. Um, I think it's exciting to read. Thank you. And, but on the other context, I'm going to kind of ask you a question. What is it about politics? Is it your fascination with it? Have you ever thought of running for politics? Oh, God, no. I, um, I can't stand those jerks in the press corps. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know, some time ago, I mean, I, I'm fortunate. I'm not exaggerating when I found in high school what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. The fact that I took a break and went to work for Sam Trans and Caltrain was something I never expected to do and was not really journalism in any meaningful way, although the insights I gained in the government and public policy and being in the public eye have really heavily informed my reporting since then. But um, I know how rare it is to know what you want to do at a young age and then have a chance to do it. Um, so, I grew up in a political household. My mother in San Bruno was very active in local politics. I can remember coming home from the fourth grade, and there was a coffee being held in my front room by Leo Ryan, who was running for the state assembly. He was my older brother's high school political science teacher, Cappuccino High School. Well, unique thing is I saw Leo Ryan two weeks before he was killed in Guyana. He was up at uh, Burrell. Uh, restaurant, and at that time, if you can remember historically, what had happened was Patty Hearst had been arrested for the SLA. Yeah. And I, I went up to Leo, uh, you know, at a young age in my twenties, and said, "Leo, what are they going to do to Patty?" He says, "They're going to throw the book at her." <laughs> but that—that that was his sense of humor. Yeah. Well, I actually talked to Leo about three days before he left because he was trying to convince my newspaper to send me with him to Guyana, and I'm fine that we didn't go. Wow. Um, wow. So you, you know, it's. What is it about politics? First of all, I grew up in a household where political discussion was just standard fare at the dinner table. But I like that it's important, that it matters. Everybody wants to say it doesn't matter. 
they're all the same, all those things that are simply not true. In, in local politics in particular, it, it's the government that's the closest to the people. It's where you get things done. Somebody calls you up as a council member and says, there's a huge pothole on my street. You call the city manager, say, can you take care of this? And you get it done for somebody. There's there's huge value in that. And, and so, that, to me, a lot of it is, is holding people accountable, making them explain what they mean, making them stick to what they mean. And I'm, you know, I have a pretty low tolerance for phoniness. Um, now, that, you know, I may be a bigger phony than anybody else, but, uh, yeah, I can be blunt when I think somebody's trying to pull a fast Well, I enjoy reading your columns, and I know many of the, the readers do, too, because they're, they're kind of thinking, what are you thinking? Sometimes, yeah. in, in, in well, obviously, it, you get people to smile, and you do get people upset at you sometimes, well, too. Well, yeah, it, it, it's not a secret. Whatever I'm thinking uh-huh. is right there. There's, a, there's no hidden agenda. I don't have an agenda other than to report it. You know, it's a great chance to say this, Patrick, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, and thank you so much for doing this. I don't have a stake in how these things turn out. You know, I can separate. I mean, Kevin Mullen's a friend of mine. So is David Canepa. So is Emily Beach. I, I can honestly say whoever wins doesn't matter to me. It's not going to change how I do what I do. Whoever loses, I'll still be their friends. It doesn't matter to me. And so there's an ability that journalists learn to separate their own feelings from what they're reporting on. And, and it's actually a lot easier than people might think it is. Well, you know, that's what we're trying to do with podcasts by the day. We're not trying to be a political uh, thing, whether it's right, left, middle, or center. We're just trying to get a discussion and yeah. talking through communication. Um, you know, uh, recently um, you, you, you've had some columns on talking about this upcoming election um, obviously, um, there should be a greater voter turnout. I know you, you've mentioned a couple things, is the Roe versus Wade situation in, in the engagement of women. Do you think that that is going to draw in the uh, local election as well as the national election? I, I think so. I, I think there are, you know, what motivates people to vote when they feel they have something at stake? And even at the city council level, you're seeing candidates make quite an issue of, I'm, I'm for Prop 1, the the measure that would encode uh, reproductive rights in our state constitution. They say, I'm pro-choice, I'm pro-allowing people to to make that decision for themselves, even at a city council level, where it would seem to be not particularly relevant to the job of city council. You know better than I do what percentage of the work you do is essentially land use decisions, whether it's uh, rezoning a downtown area, which of course Foster City doesn't mm-hmm. have, or, or just letting someone build something that they want to build and dealing with the people who are opposed to it. But there is, you know, some cities have a Planned Parenthood clinic in them. San, San Mateo voted to establish a buffer around the clinic to make it a little bit less uncomfortable for people who need to go there for their services. So you know, it's relevant as long as it matters to people. So will there be a bigger turnout? There will be a bigger turnout just because the election is a general election. The governor's on the on the ballot. A couple of other races are on the ballot that will draw people. Um, so I would think it will be higher. You know, friends of mine who are experts in the women's vote, quote-unquote, uh, say women do not vote as a block. This may be the one issue where there's a... Re- um, that's the exception to the rule. Will they turn out in bigger numbers than normal? Everybody expects that to be the case. We'll have to see. 
In the, in the um, last couple of elections, and we'll, we'll talk about the um, upcoming election for Carol Groom's position, which we have uh, Charles Stone and Ms. Corzo uh, running for that position. Um, what we noticed early out of the block is that um, Mr. Stone got a lot of endorsements right away. Um, and there was probably not too many people that he didn't get an endorsement. What I'm trying to kind of go at, it used to be a period of time in endorsements, people took their time before endorsing, and uh, obviously some people are doing that way ahead of the election time. Do you think that's uh, a positive sign, or is things, are things changing on the endorsement line because of social media? I, I, think, I think the latter. I think things are changing. You know, people are running earlier. I mean, Charles has been running for this seat since 2019. That was that three years ago. So um, some of it is you're being, you know, as somebody who might endorse. I mean, I'm sure you've been asked in some of the city council races and even some of the soups races to endorse. You're getting asked earlier. Why is that? Because people are trying to get so far ahead that they've sort of foreclosed the field. And everybody says it's, it's called doing a Jerry Hill. When Jerry Hill first ran for supervisor, he rounded up so many endorsements so early, raised so much money so early, that no one ran against him, or no one um, who was a serious threat, I should say, ran against him. Well, on this, one, on this particular race, which is kind of unique, uh, in the primary, um, despite doing all that, the uh, race was rather close. Yeah, so yeah. So a, a little unusual. Any, any take on that? Yeah, I, I think it's... There's a bunch of things going on there. One is um, we're in an interesting environment politically where there's a restlessness, I think, among people generally for change. Um, I think Noelia Corzo represents certainly a change from the status quo, whereas Charles, by virtue of his endorsements, if nothing else, is very much a sort of status quo, quote-unquote, establishment guy. Um, I think... Uh, the, uh, the things we were just talking about, the, the larger turnout among women probably helps Noelia Corzo. Um, I think it's also just a hard election season to read because of that desire for change. I mean, we had at the same ballot the race for sheriff uh, where Christina Corpus soundly defeated an incumbent. I think that drew a lot more voters who would tend to not want to vote for the establishment candidate than would have ordinarily shown up. And then there's also another element, which is that she represents the San Mateo Foster City School District. And I did the research. You asked where I go to look things up. There's 75,000 registered voters in that school district. It's the largest school district in the county versus Belmont, where there are about 15,000 registered voters. So she starts... This is the thing about district elections. She starts from a base is just much bigger than where Charles Stone is starting from. So there's an advantage there that I think was a little hard to read initially because who knew? School districts tend to have a little bit lower profile than a city council position. Um, so because of district elections, because of um, sort of an aggressive progressive movement in the county, because of the women's um, possibility of higher turnout among women, it's an election where maybe all the normal rules don't apply. What do you think of district elections? I mean, obviously, um, most cities around, uh, except the city, have not gone to district elections yeah. at this point. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> uh, what's your opinion on district elections? Do you think it's an uh, equalizer? You know, this is a good example of 
I don't care one way or the other. <laughs> you know, my job is to write about what's going on. Certainly, district elections make races make more races. San Mateo is a good example. Two or three other cities where there's, you know, San Carlos is running citywide. Redwood City's got three district elections up, one of which is unopposed. So it all depends on what city you're in. Um, it certainly does lower the threshold for somebody to run. It lowers the threshold for somebody to win. I mean, you're a grassroots campaigner. I, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in your 20 years you've knocked on every single door in Foster City. Yes, I guess I can say I did. I, I, I kid everybody. I said, you know, I'm the only council member that has got more votes than anybody else in the history of Foster City <laughs> because I ran more. Because you've run so many times. Well, as an example, in Menlo Park, where district elections were really the first, first city to really do that, three in, you know, Two incumbents got defeated. Boom, out. And it, the districts were small enough in Menlo Park that you could literally knock on every door in that district. Well, that's true in a lot of these cities. San Mateo is an example. If you're an aggressive campaigner, you can get to everybody. You know, assuming that they like you once they meet you, you're okay. So it does. It the main the main thing that interests me is it dramatically changes the dynamic. Does it lower the threshold? Does it mean a more progressive group? Uh, I, I don't know. We'll see. Um, you you pe see people in San Mateo like Amarin Lee, who's really determined to sort of dominate the agenda by uh, advocating for progressive positions and seeing if she can get like-minded people on the council as allies. Um, that's something that would have been much harder to do in, in non-district elections. Well, you know, in the, the Menlo Park example, I think it was the first time they've got somebody from the Fair Oaks area elected. So that I think that was pivotal for Menlo From Bellhaven, yeah. yeah. Bellhaven area. So yeah. That, that was great. Yeah. Um, you know, um, most of the voters uh, that early, are in for the last 10 years have been registering nonpartisan. Um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the good majority of the voters in San Mateo County are registered Democrat, a very small percentage are Republican. How much of that nonpartisan vote plays a part in most of these general elections? Yeah, it's, uh, it's about, uh, I forget the numbers, it's 40-something percent uh, Democrat, 30-something percent no party preference and about 14 percent Republican. Uh, I am convinced that a huge percentage of the people, not a huge, a substantial percentage of the people who have stated no party preference are actually Republicans who just can't stomach how the Republican Party has changed. Um, so I think there are more Republicans here in the sort of classic moderate on social issues, conservative on fiscal issues, that was the Republican Party in San Mateo County 30 years ago, when you had people like Becky Morgan and uh, Jerry Hill was still a Republican back in those days, Tom Campbell, Ed Shaw, some of those people. Um, those were moderate Republicans who were pro-environment, pro-choice, um, but fiscal conservatives. I think I'd go back and say probably the first one that I re recall was Quentin Cobb. I remember. Well, you got to remember Quentin ran as an independent. Right. Yeah. So, and he's sort of in a class by himself. So yes, he is. You know? yeah. um, so, you know, what does that all mean? Um, it, it means that the Republicans, if they want to win, have to find a way to win some of those people back. But it also does mean that whoever's running, if they want to get a, you know, 50% plus one, which is the whole point, probably ought to be finding a way to appeal to those group of people who feel like they're in the middle somewhere. 
you've, you've written a few columns on, on progressive conservatism. Can you tell me what that means to you? No, I don't think I progressive conservatism. I don't think that's the phrase. I, I, what, I what was the phrase that maybe that you've used? On I, it? I, I don't know. I was aggressive conservatism. Maybe aggressive. <laughs> I, I, well, okay. Here, here was uh, uh, from the Daily Journal. Progressive conservatism. Yeah. So I. And so I. Oh, okay. That was that was the headline. Yeah. It's okay. one of the things you'll always hear reporters uh-huh. say. I don't write the headlines. But what I was talking about was the long signs that say, you know, we believe in. Um, human rights and science and freedom and all that, mm-hmm. um, but they don't let people to move into their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, we're at danger of becoming, um, if we aren't already, an exclusive wealthy enclave where nobody who isn't here already or who isn't wealthy can afford to live here. I mean, I'm lucky. I bought my house in 1980. You don't even want to know what I paid for mm-hmm. compared to what I could sell it for now. I couldn't buy the house I live in now if I wanted to. Um, so th- what I mean is that, that there's a lot of there are a lot of people who are good at giving r- rhetorical credit to we're pro-choice, Black Lives Matter. We believe in um, better policing. We believe in green uh, policies, climate change. Um, but when it's time to let your neighbor put an ADU in his backyard, that same neighbor is saying, well, I don't want the traffic. The traffic will bother me. I'm not, I'm not crazy about that. I mean, he's, he's a council member. I, you know, everybody believes we should build more housing, and they believe it should be built somewhere else. Uh, and that's the challenge. And so that's what I meant by that. I, I wouldn't have necessarily chosen that headline. But yeah, the yeah idea that, that is was that, an interesting idea. Yeah. That's why I was grappling with what yeah. did you so, mean. So the idea is that, that this is a very liberal slash progressive community in a lot of ways. But when it comes to changing the land use patterns that make this community more accessible to a wider range of people, there's a lot of discomfort for that. And, and, and for some valid reasons... I mean, a huge amount of my net worth is tied up in the house I, I bought. I don't want somebody to do something that ruins that. But it, it's it's the only way we're going to prevent us from cutting more and more people. Currently, uh, I'm glad you brought this up. We, we have a problem, obviously, in the housing situation where the state is trying to dictate us in arena numbers on uh, building more housing. Um, unfortunately, the housing that we're building is rental units uh, right. to offset any thought process on that? I, I mean, you, you dovetail on two things. One, you're not going to move because you don't want to pay the capital gains like a lot of us. And if you had a house that you could move to and not have to pay all that tax, you may consider it if it's still in the same area you live around. Yeah. So how do, how do, we, how do we approach that better? I know most of the politicians that I've talked to or interviewed over time, they basically tell me, Patrick, wait till the next recession and we won't have a housing imbalance. Well, that's a pretty cold-hearted way to yeah, look at I it. Know. I, I mean, suppose that's true. Say it on well, the air. And i got to tell you, we, we went through a recession. When was it? 2008, 2009? Yeah, housing values went down a little bit, but they're right back up. I mean, you know, that that they don't stay down is the thing. And so even if they go down 20%, if it's a $2 million house, it's now 1.8. I mean, it's still beyond the means of a lot of the people who, in theory, uh, guys like you were trying to build this housing for. The, the answer may be, and it's interesting, I, I just wrote a, a piece for Climate Magazine, which is the Redwood City-based magazine, uh, on the, some of the local elections. And one of the candidates for city council in Redwood City said, uh, and I think this may be a, a point of view to consider, the next big move ought to be toward ownership. 
instead of building rental units, build condos and put together maybe a plan sort of like what the community college did where it made housing available and had a financing scheme available for people. That may, that may be the next answer. And the other answer is, and this is something I wrote years ago when I was at the Chronicle, the, the place to put all this housing is on El Camino and it should be seven, eight, ten stories, should be high, de- high rise, high density. It's convenient to transportation. It, it's the place to put it. It's the least likely to impact neighborhoods. Being in the real estate industry for over 40 years, I concur with what your thought process. One of the major problems we have besides the housing is the transportation. But I want to dovetail into something with the state of California. The state of California has identified some 92 properties in unincorporated areas in the counties and cities, which are in a quarter transportation areas. Uh, wouldn't that, because 50% of the cost of a house is the land, so wouldn't that be a good place to possibly start to build affordable housing or workforce housing? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, look, when I worked at Caltrain, uh, you know, I had a Google account where every time the name Caltrain popped up, I'd see it. A minimum of once a week, there was a report of some developer buying property adjacent to a Caltrain station. One of the studies that the industry did is the property near transportation hubs holds its value better in a recession and bounces back faster than other property. It's just more valuable. That's why you see the office buildings going up all around that. You look at San Mateo near the Hayward Park Station. You see a high, high rises going up there. That's really the place to do it. Um, the problem is that there's... It's, it's not for the faint-hearted. I mean, people... The real answer is not four or five stories. It's eight or ten stories. And so a lot of city councils, a lot of people in residential areas who just won't embrace that. When I was at Sandtrans, one of the first things Mike Scanlon put together was a coalition to talk about what's now known as the Grand Boulevard Initiative. And the answer is you build high-rise housing that looks like good, almost like stately manners if you want, and then you have hubs or nodes at major intersections where you have commercial and retail. There are small ones like 25th Avenue in San Mateo where it's like a neighborhood. There are a couple of restaurants. There's a laundry, that kind of thing. And then there are regional ones like Sequoia Station or Stanford. And then you don't need to drive to it because the transportation then will be... I mean, one of the challenges of El Camino is there's one business after another, all these small little businesses. If that was all housing... Now you're going from one node to another. People are getting out of their cars or walking to the, to the nearest node and catching a bus that skips past all these other stops. So we, what we need is the buzzwords we're hearing back in Sacramento as seamless transportation. So um, how do we do that? I know the El Camino, you brought a good example. They had the El Camino thing a long time ago that they were going to make that the big boulevard and also hook your train, your BART, and everything else to it. Do you think that that's uh, down the road a picture that they, they could happen? Well, I, I think the answer is yes. In fact, I think you see it already. You know, you see more and more residential building going up on El Camino. There's a project underway in Menlo Park that's almost all residential. That used to be a whole row of uh, automobile dealerships. I guess that shows you how times have changed. But... Um, that's exactly what the Grand Boulevard Initiative is talking about, is take out, you know, row upon row upon row of small re- retail um, and put in housing. 
and then you, you go nearby. It's like Ravenswood and El Camino. It's a little node there. So there's a lot of ways to do this. And so I, I think, you know, you know better than I do, it's all about the path of least resistance. If you can build on El Camino and not have 150 people in your chamber, city council chamber, yelling at you, then let's do it there instead of over in some neighborhood where they're all going to get angry. And the next thing you know, three of them are outside the safe with a clipboard uh, recalling somebody, you know. With the current or the past situation where we're still coming out of is the COVID situation. Um, and the the new method or the new approach for employment seems to be that most people want to work at home, um, which is a good sign, um, but it's also a bad sign because traffic indications are that there's still just as many people on the road even though they're working remotely. Uh, is there any solution around the remotely? Uh, well, actually, I, I know there's a hybrid, the popular term is hybrid now that companies are having people come in like three days a week in their home, two days a week. Uh, I actually think that's transitional and that eventually the companies will want everybody back in the office. You, you know, so many companies here are, their, their, their main currency is intellectual property. I mean, look at Facebook. They have to generate X number of ideas a day in case one of them is a winner. And they have some things that aren't winners and they don't get very far. Google, Google Glass. Remember the Google yeah. Glasses? That didn't go anywhere, but that didn't stop Google from doing something else six months later. Or the Google Phone, too. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, that only happens if everybody's in the office interacting. Um, you know, the other issue is, I imagine, you know, imagine you and I are some mid-level manager at Oracle. Um, you're going into the office every day. I'm coming in three days a week. You keep bumping into our boss and saying, hey, I had an idea for this. Hey, what about that? I can't get him on the phone. In terms of my career, where do you think I ought to be? Wow. Yeah, no, that's a good point. You know, with that transition that we're seeing in the housing, um, we're going to see possibly, if unless everybody goes back to the office, vacancies. I know in Foster City we have a two visa buildings and one of them that seems to be vacant. What do you think about a mixed-use situation instead of continuing to build out to make a mixed-use commercial and maybe residential combination? Kind of like a hub like you were talking about. Yeah, I, I don't know if I have an opinion on something like that except that I'm well aware of the complications, which is, you know, you have an office building, one floor has one bathroom, two bathrooms on it. You start slicing it up into condos, got to put a bathroom and a kitchen in every one of them. Mm -hmm. The, the, the costs to the developer are going to be substantial. So the question is, what are the incentives to the developer so that they can still have that pencil out? Mark, you've had a long journey for the last 40 years. Yeah. And I want to kind of highlight, give you an opportunity to share with the audience um, a couple of uh, highlights and disappointments um, in your career. Oh, gosh. Well, disappointments every day when I write a column, I'm disappointed that I couldn't do better. Um, you know, the, the thing about what I've done over all these years, I was a political writer and went to six national conventions, traveled with presidential candidates, and that's almost like joining the circus. I mean, that's a lot of fun. Um, sitting knee to knee with Ronald Reagan while he explains how a facelift is done, because I asked him if he'd ever had one. That's kind of cool. And, you know, I, I've met some of these people, and they are, everybody's charming, 
and charismatic as you would think. You know, I, I like to say to people, pick the national figure you dislike the most. If you met him one-on-one in the kind of setting we're in now, you'd come away impressed, even if you never agreed with the person, because they don't get where they are by accident. So spending time with the top political minds in the country and the top political figures is a lot of fun. If I have to pick one, I happen to be in Washington, D.C. on the Veterans Day where they dedicated the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And unbeknownst to me, there was a chorus of vets from the Menlo Park VA Hospital. They were all suffering with PTSD. It was brand new. This was new therapy. And as part of their therapy, they had them form a chorus. Well, they were there at the the dedication because they were in the Veterans Day Parade. And I went with them when they went to um, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And there was one guy I, I met and sort of befriended. And he was telling me about how his unit was overrun. And one by one, four other guys in his unit were wounded. He dragged each of them to safety, having been wounded himself. And all four of them died. Well, as I'm sure anybody who's been to the wall knows, the names are listed chronologically in the order of the reporting of their death. So I'm walking with him, and he sees the four names, one right after the other, began sobbing. And I, I still get choked up telling the story. Um, that was that was something else to see, to be there for that, to have that opportunity to be there and have somebody share that kind of raw emotion. So those are the kinds of things that stay with you over time. You know, people well, in places I, should I admire you on that uh, bet that you made on the uh, sheriff's race. Um, <laughs> that was kind of, you want to share with the yeah, you know, with the listeners what happened? I know that that was an upset. Uh, well, in my defense, you know, I, people tell me stuff all the time, which is my job. All I know is what people tell me. Somebody puts out a press release saying they have a poll that shows them ahead by ten points. I knew that the sheriff was in trouble, but I didn't think he was in that much trouble. How do I know? You know, you ask around. You know, I'm not talking to every voter, so I don't know. Um, but when you get that, the first thing you say is, can, what, you, what can you tell me about the poll? When was it done? Who did you ask? What's the question you asked? Because in polling, you know, you and I can run against each other, and it will say, Patrick Sullivan, real estate man, Mark Simon, journalist. If all they do is ask that, then that number is one thing. If they say, Patrick Sullivan, who's lost the last six elections, Mark Simon, who's, you know, this, suddenly your number's going to go down and mine's going to go up. It's called a push question. And I couldn't tell whether whether that 10-point lead was straight up or the result of a push question. So I was skeptical. That's my job, is to be skeptical. I, well, I, I admired what you did. And, uh, well, what happened is I said... I said, I thought she was going to win, but if she won by 10 points, I'd eat this column. Well, she won by 14. So I had the column made into a cake and ate it that way. Yes. Well, congratulations that you um, honored your bet, so yeah. to speak. On behalf of Podcast by the Bay, Mark Simon, I want to thank you. thank you very much. Continue the good work. I look forward to talking to you again sometime. It's my pleasure, Patrick. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Podcast by the Bay. You can contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Podcast by the Bay is a production of 
Bay City Communications and is sponsored by Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com All material and content is property of Podcast by the Bay, but does not necessarily reflect the views of Podcast by the Bay. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast by the Bay as our handle or on Facebook, facebook.com slash podcast by the bay. And remember, you can listen to any of our episodes anytime on any podcast site. Until next time, stay tuned. Stay tuned.